0: So my name is Shane Shaw, and I'm one of the elders here at Hannaford. Um, I grew up in church. I went to Bible college right out of high school for a year at Montana Institute of the Bible, and then I went to school in Dillon for a couple years because I thought I was going to be a college football player. Uh, And I spent 30 years as a law enforcement officer, and now I investigate things for an insurance company. So that's my background. After I left Bible College at age 19, I went to school down in Dillon, because I thought I was going to be a college football player. Now, at high school in Whitehall, I started on the varsity all four years. As a senior, I was the MVP of the team. I was this very good class B football player. So I just figured I was going to saunter into college and be a good college football player. I thought it was going to be simple, and by the fourth game of the season, in I went. I'm thinking, finally the coach sees, and of course, I'm kind of like one of those little poodles, you know, or a, a dachshund, or we call them wiener dogs, those long ones, you know, that have a lot of bark. They think they're tough. That's kind of how I was. I didn't see myself as 5'7", 205, so I go in this game, very first play, I'm the right or the left guard, and... I go in the game and I go up to the line of scrimmage and if you played football you understand the linemen before they get set, they're not worried about where the defense is standing because the defense is going to move around. So I go up to the line and I find my distance from the center and from the tackle and I get down in a stance and I'm not going to do that because I might fall right off the platform now. (laughs) But uh, I get down in my stance and the quarterback is calling signals and you know, ready, set, and I look up. And for me, that's kind of hard. I got such a short neck, there's not a whole lot of room. So it's, it really is a strain for me to look up and see forward. So I do, I'm looking up like this. And this, I swear he was right there. He was, probably, he was more than the length of a football away. This huge black guy from Eastern Oregon. I don't know, 6'3, 275, maybe bigger than that. And I'm looking right in his face, and he's as close as he can get, looking at me. And then just before the snap, I saw the biggest set of white teeth you've ever seen in your life. A huge smile on his face. And I can remember thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> I could have called time out and gotten my MVP plaque and laid it down in front, maybe my all-conference certificates. My wrestling medals, you think that would have made a difference? No. No. It was a moment of truth for me. Now, on that play, I was assigned to block downfield, so I didn't block that guy. I went down and found a safety, you know, one that's 5'10", 175. And I knocked him into our bench. I was so proud of that block, and I turned around, and that guy that was smiling at me, he tackled the guy with the ball. And so out of the game I went, one play, and that was how college football went for me because guess what? At 5'7", 205, when you're not very fast, there's not a lot of places to play because everybody was a good football player somewhere, and it was a moment of truth for me, and later we're going to talk about this again, if I don't dilly-dally in this sermon, But the fact is, is there's going to be a day when you stand before God, and I wonder if you're going to say, "Uh uh-oh, have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been afraid? I think if you stand before God on your own merit, or you're not sure what's going to happen, I think that would be a reason to be afraid. Now, as a police officer, I learned how to partition fear off. I don't remember being afraid. Now, my wife was plenty afraid, and I found out years later my kids were afraid when I went to work, but I wasn't afraid. I learned how to put a wall inside my brain so that when we went in with the SWAT team, I wanted to be the first guy in the door. And when there was a a fight brewing, I wanted to be in the middle of it. When an armed robbery took place, and you can ask my wife one night, they robbed one of the stop-and-robs, a 7-Eleven, she happened to be riding with me that night, and we raced across town at 90 miles an hour. Now, why I wanted to get there that fast with her in the car, I have no idea. But I, didn't, I lived my life without that kind of fear because I partitioned it off. This week is peace, or this today is Peace Off's Memorial Day. And one thing you find out about cops is that they're real good at partitioning that off. And sometimes it leaks out into other areas of their lives. But they partition that off until one of their brothers or sisters gets killed in the line of duty. And then you see all kinds of things happen. Processions and memorials and flags, half-staff, and all these things that they do. And not only are the police officers doing that, but their, their uh, partners, the firemen and the ambulance driver, ambulance people and the paramedics, they're all together. Because for a few moments anyway, that partition is torn down. And you have to confront your fear. You know, we went through that, that as a society starting two years ago, if you think about it, when COVID hit. And I have to admit, I was afraid. It just gnawed at me. Because I, there were things I couldn't control. And even though myself, I be, being the poodle, unafraid kind of personality I I am. I didn't think it would get me, but I worried about my wife and my daughter and my mother and some friends I had and what was going to happen. And everybody went through that. If you went to the grocery store, you'd watch people. They'd all stay to themselves. It was almost like they wanted a shield up. Don't get close to me. And people were genuinely afraid afraid of dying, of getting sick, of infecting someone else if they caught it. We all dealt with that fear. And it's because there was this silent, deadly enemy that was unknown. Now, a lot of people today kind of scoff at COVID and say, well, it was blown out of proportion. But I can tell you that my little league coach, who was also the athletic director in my high school, and his wife died from COVID. The husband of the secretary at the police, the detective division, the secretary of the detective division in the police department, very good friends of mine, he was 58, healthy guy, died from COVID. A a friend of ours down the street we went to church with died from COVID. Um, Teachers, people we knew, and I know all of you were impacted by that too. In fact, we're still a little bit afraid of COVID even though we've decided we're going to have to live through it. It was a serious event. And if you say you were never afraid, then you never really thought about the consequences. Maybe you're pretty good with that partition. But the disciples were afraid too. If you turn in your Bibles to John 14, John 14, if you don't have a Bible but you have a cell phone, you can open up your smartphone, you can log into the church website, go to... Uh, google and google in john 14 1 to 6 you can read it there you have your ipad you can look there i think it'll be on the screen behind me just to set the stage though jesus is in the upper room this is all part of the night he was betrayed this is before he was arrested there's a lot of things he said and a lot of things that happened but this was that night it was in that room it was with his disciples and what has happened just before these verses, before this little speech he gives, is Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And then he tells Judas, go do what you're going to do. And so Judas leaves. And then he announces that, uh, that bad things are coming, basically. And Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows in the morning, Peter, you're going to deny you even know me. So that conversation happened. And so we have these things going on, and Jesus tells them, I'm going away. Now remember, it was just four days earlier that Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, and people proclaimed him king, and they threw the palm branches down in front of him. And the disciples thought this was the beginning of the kingdom of the Messiah, and they were going to be relieved of the oppressor, the Romans. And the Messiah was going to take over. But God had other plans. You know, if, if you're like Peter, and sometimes I think I'm like Peter, although I'm not the leader he was, I'm not as courageous as he was, but as impetuous maybe. You know, Peter's the guy that jumped out of the boat to walk on the water and cut off the, the ear of the high priest. I mean, he did that a couple hours later after Jesus said he was going to deny him. And Peter was that guy who said, I'll lay down my life for you. You may be one of those people. But when fear comes, how will you respond? How will you respond? So let's read these verses. John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Lord, I pray the words from your scripture and the testimony of your son, Jesus, would permeate our hearts, change our lives. I pray that we would cling to the basis of all that we believe, that we would follow you, and I pray that you would be our answer for fear. pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So when you look at the start of this chapter, it says, "Let let not your heart be troubled, that implies personal. It also implies you have some control over it. And it offers the solution. Heaven's promise. The solution to a troubled heart is to look at the promises of God. And then he goes on to say this, You believe in God, believe also in me. I look at that It's kind of like, uh, You believe in God, don't you? Then believe in me too. Notice the connection between fear and faith. Now, Jesus makes an interesting statement when he does that. There are are some people that disagree about how this is really laid out, but the way I understand it, it's almost like he's challenging them to say, well, I know you believe in God. The Jews believe in God. They have this tradition. You've seen all these things that God has done. God is the creator. Believe in me too. You want to overcome fear? Believe in me. It's a matter of faith. It's always a matter of faith. It's never a matter of what you can do for yourself. It's always about faith in Jesus Christ. You know, as I've studied and meditated on this passage, I've gone through those two little phrases, you believe in God, believe also in me, over and over and over. Because it's right in the middle of all this other stuff. And there's a lot in this. If we were going to really do an in-depth study on this, it would take several weeks to mine all the information in there and all the questions that would come up in your mind about what's here. But I think too often we hold a belief in the idea of God without making any part of that belief personal. As if God is some distant being whose existence never really intersects with our lives. Now, I can tell you, at five years old, I started to understand these ideas. I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior as a five-year-old. So young people here, anyone young, you don't get off the hook on this. You don't think this is for old people or adults just because you think that that allows you an out. You can understand this. You need to embrace this because you do not know the day that God may call you. So what happens is is that we have this belief of God that's somewhere out there. So when we have trouble, when we have fear, we don't rely on that belief to deal with the emotion of the moment. So when fear arises, we are left to our own devices. We don't look to God for the solution to our fear. Another thing is, I think our modern society and the great schemer and liar himself, Satan, have convinced a lot of people that Christianity, Jesus, the resurrection, and probably heaven as well, is all like a fairy tale. It's equal to the Easter bunny, Santa Claus, and the tooth fairy. It's kind of like when kids grow up and they finally realize they've been duped into believing that Santa Claus put the presents under the tree. Well... The question for you then is, is your faith in Jesus Christ real or is your hope of heaven wishful thinking? You have to think about that yourself. This is a personal decision. You know, one thing about dealing with things in your life, if the oncologist says you have cancer, yeah, all your family's upset, but for you it's personal. If you're the one who's on the hot seat at work, it's you personal. If, if you're afraid about some mistakes you made or or actions you did, it's personal. And before God, when you stand before God, it's personal. You don't get judged as a group. You don't get judged with all your friends so you can excuse, well, everybody else did it too. You know, it's kind of like you get pulled over for speeding and you say, well, I was just going the same speed as the car in front of me. Sorry, you were the one that got stopped today, I guess, but I mean, you know, the thing is, is we don't get judged as a group. It's personal, it's individual. Jesus is the guarantor of the promise. And I want to emphasize this. I can't emphasize this enough. It's not the strength of your faith or the depth of your faith. You know, we hear people talk, about, man, they're really religious. Well, it's not the depth of your devotion. It's the object of your faith that matters. It's who your trust is in. And it needs to be simple, childlike trust. I trust in Jesus Christ because he promised that he was going to prepare a place for me. You look at that verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. I love that word in the King James. Uh, if you have a different translation, they're not as good a words. Dwelling places or rooms. That's boring. I like mansions. But it's not like you get your own row house in heaven. But we do know this, that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and it's in my Father's house. That's what He's doing, preparing a place for you. What that implies is that if, you're, if you are in Christ, if you're one of His, He's going to come back for you, but you have a room. You have a place. Because we know that all of us have an an appointment either with the returning Christ or the Christ who raises us from the dead. We're all mortal. And then, of course, he says this at the end of this section, where I go you know and the way you know. And Thomas speaks up. It's interesting, Thomas, you you have to love him because he thinks like we do. At least he thinks like I do. Time out. Time out. You didn't say where you're going. How can I know the way? I mean, if you're going over to, uh, to the, the Dead Sea, well, we know that way, but we don't know where you're going. Well, Jesus had already told him. He's going back to his father. He had told him previously he was going to be lifted up. He was going to be killed by the, by the Jews and the Romans. He already told him that. But they'd partitioned that off because, in their mind, he was the Messiah who was going to solve their temporal, temporary problems on this earth. And he came with a much long, uh, a purpose that was much more eternal in perspective. He was going to solve the the problem man had with sin, our need for reconciliation. So Thomas is always blunt. Always practical, you know, after Jesus rose from the dead, he showed himself to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas said, unless I see the the marks in his hands and I touch the wound in his side, I'll never believe. That's who we are. And yet when he was confronted with the risen Christ, he fell on his face and worshipped my Lord and my God. It's funny, you know, Thomas says, how are we going to know the way? We don't even know where you're going. And this was the response of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you look on your bulletins, you see on the back, there's this thing in gray. And I'm sorry, it's a little hard to read. I should have done a better job getting that ready to go on the bulletin. But what this is, is this is John fourteen six from the interlinear Bible, okay, this is just kind of a side note for you if you want to be a student of the Bible and you want to study it in more depth. Because if you look at this, right in the middle, right in the middle is John 14:6 6 as it was written in the Greek. Okay? And you can read Greek by reading the line above it. So it has the word. Legai, Ato, Ho. I can't even read it here because it's so dark. Jesus. Jesus. This said Jesus, and then you see the rest of this. And you go into the next part of it, and it has these uh, words. Hey, Hodas, and hey, Aletheia, and hey, Zoe. Way, truth, life. So with this, if you Google John 14, 6 in the Greek, and that's where I got this. I'm not a Greek scholar. I've taken a little bit of Greek class from our pastor in Wyoming. But I'm not a Greek scholar. But if you look up the interlinear Bible, you can see the Greek written in the middle, the actual in English letters above what the word is and how to pronounce it. Below it is actually what the word was translated into English. There are other things in there. You move your cursor over it and you'll get a link to the Englishman's concordance. The Englishman's concordance will show, the, show you other places in the Bible where that word was used. And it will also show you in the Bible where similar forms of that word were used. And then, and you, when you get into the interlinear Bible, it will also connect, connect you with like vines, concordance, it'll give you the meaning of the word in different tenses, and at the bottom of this it, it'll show that verb or word in the tense that it was written. And I put this on there for those of you who want to go on and study scripture more, that's a way you could do that and you don't have to be a Greek scholar or be able to read Greek, to do that. Well, let's look at this verse for a few minutes. You know, when Jesus says this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he's claiming this little word, I am. Okay? And one of the reasons they wanted to stone Jesus, the Jews did, is because back in John 10, he made this statement to them, they said, you didn't know Abraham and he said before Abraham ever existed I am it was a clear claim to him being the God at the burning bush when Moses uh, appeared before God at the burning bush and he said what is your name and God said tell him the I am has sent you and yet Jesus says I am and yet, if you look in John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. John 8, he said, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he said, I am the door of the sheepfold. In John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 15, he said, I am the true vine. So if you want to study scripture, you want to understand where John was coming from, you should study those passages because they unlock the book and what's written there and God's revelation to us about who Jesus is. And John says at the end, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that's his point. But in this little section of words where Jesus says, I am, you'll notice there's three words and I've talked about them a couple times. But there's three other words in there that you can drive right past, and they're important. Because it says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. And in Greek, these are not negotiable, fuzzy, unbeg words. They're specific. They are specific words that identify that Jesus is These things. They're definite articles if you want the specific thing. And one thing, if you start to study Greek, you'll understand why our teachers in elementary school and grammar school made us diagram sentences. But I could digress on that a long time. Well, there's three things here that you should know that come out of this. One, when he talks about these things, he says that he is the direction, the foundation, and the motivation for your life. Now think about that. Direction foundation, and motivation for your life. Well, the first one is obvious, the way. The word translated way means more than just life's ultimate destination. For example, the way Jesus walked, his path led to the cross. Our path leads to wherever God directs us. (coughs) Psalm 1611 says this, this is David writing, you will show me the path of life. There's that that same idea, the, the way. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus says, I am the way, and what he's saying is, is the only way mankind can have a relationship with the Almighty God is through Jesus Christ. Our own righteousness cannot lead us to reconciliation with God Or lead us to heaven. The only path to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you want direction in your life, you must put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you want a relationship with God, you must put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you want to connect with God in prayer, you must put your trust in Jesus Christ. But why? Why Jesus? How could He say, I'm the way? I mean, if I stood up here and said, hey, me, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You guys would leave. You'd say that guy's delusional. So how can Jesus say, say that? What gives him the right to say I am the way? Well, you move on to the next one. He says, I am the truth. And you notice in this he didn't say I am a way. I am a truth. I am truth a life. He said, I am the. So in our world today, when you hear people say, whatever's true for you is truth, well, not according to Jesus Christ. So you reject what Jesus said, you reject all of it. That's your choice. Okay. So the question you have to ask then is, what is the connection between the way and the truth? And this I've spent a lot of time thinking about. But the fact that Jesus is the truth is foundational to everything we believe. Before evidence can be admitted in court, there has to be foundation. You have to prove that it's credible, that it's reliable, that it's related to the issue at hand. Okay, If there's a murder with a gun, I can't go get the 357. I don't even have one anymore the 357 out of your closet walk in slam it down on the podium in front of the judge and say there it is judge that proves he killed that guy no you have to prove that that gun is the gun that it was at the scene that is it is a gun i mean there's all kinds of things you have to do to show foundation before it can be used as evidence so when Jesus says, I am the way, and then he says, I am the truth, think about this. Okay? He said that I am the way because I am the truth. And on what basis did he make that claim? Well, look what John wrote in John 1. And I'll read this to you. You can turn there if you want. John 1.1. 1, 1. And you cannot divorce what's said in John 1 from what's said in John 14. In the beginning was the word, and that that word is capitalized with a W. And the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, by the Word. Okay? So here's this little verse. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and all things were made by the Word. Okay, well, what's the Word? capital w the perfect expression of god almighty but when you go down to john 114 john wrote this he said and the word capital w became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory it's talking about jesus the word god's expression in time past and god's expression in human history now the greek word trans Is The Greek word there is logos, translated word. And what it means if you're looking for a definition is a statement, a speech, a declaration. And in John, it means that God has expressed or revealed himself, and we know what that expression was. The word became flesh. Notice that John wrote, we beheld his glory. Now think about this. They saw him turn water into wine. They saw him raise the dead more than once. Heal the sick. Make the blind see. And then he wrote this in 1 John 1. You'll hear more about 1 John 1 next week, but I'm just going to talk about the first couple of verses. John wrote this in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the Word, capital W, of life. The disciples, and specifically John, experienced Jesus with his eyes, with his ears, with his hands, with his emotions. You don't think those guys weren't scared out in the boat with the storm. They think it's going to sink. Jesus has Jesus taken a nap. He stands up and tells the wind and the waves to stop. You don't think they didn't experience God, Jesus, with their emotions. You know, you can talk about something that you think, your opinion. You can talk about someone else's motivation, and you might be wrong. But I can tell you, you are never wrong about how something made you feel. These guys experienced Jesus with their emotions, with every fiber of their being, including meeting with Him after He rose from the dead. And John wrote this after Jesus rose from the the dead. You know, they experienced the Word, God's perfect expression of Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. They saw Him, they touched Him, and so on. They experienced they the Word with every fiber of their being. How else could Peter be crucified upside down? How could John be boiled in oil? How could every one of the apostles except John die a martyr's death? You know, Peter's wife was crucified or executed right before him. This is the guy that ran and hid. Denied he knew Jesus. But he was changed by the risen Christ. He found a way to overcome fear. Look at what they wrote in Hebrews 1. God who at various times in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son, the Word, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory, and I love this, the express image of His person, and upholding all things, By the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the express image of God. Look at what Paul wrote in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And this is talking about the Son, the Word, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All that exists was created and is held together by the person who sat before the disciples in that room where they had the Last Supper. The foundation of our faith is based on who Jesus is. He is the perfect expression of God Almighty. He is both creator and designer of the earth and all that is on it. He is the author and the source of all absolute truth. Oh, people attending here today, my friends. Jesus is qualified to be be the way because of who he is. This belief that Jesus Christ is God and Lord, and he alone is the only way to gain access to God the Father, is at the core of our beliefs in this church. It is the core beliefs of our pastor and the assistant pastor, and our elders, and their wives, and our former pastor and his wife. This belief, it's the heartbeat, it's our anthem. You can talk to us if you want to know more. Any of the elders, or their wives, or the pastors, or someone that you trust. You know, through a trusting, repentant relationship with Jesus Christ is the only way we can enter heaven. And it's a non-negotiable foundational truth of this church. It's the anthem of the ages. It's not negotiable. Jesus is the truth and because he is God's expression and he's our creator, he's more than qualified to be the only way into heaven. So we reject the modern philosophy that there are many ways to God. And that all truth is in the eyes of the beholder. This is no fairy tale. For us, heaven is more than wishful thinking. It's everything we're trusting in. It's why we're here today. It's why we're Christians. Because we have the hope that comes because Jesus is the truth. And lastly, in this little phrase, he says this, I am the life. You know, it's not just talking about the resurrection, although that is a huge thing for us—that Jesus conquered death. He's not just talking about that; he is the resurrection and the life, like when he brought Lazarus back from the dead. If you read that in John 11, what a great story! But you look about Jesus's life. Look back to Genesis 2:7. Remember, John already wrote that Jesus made everything. He is the source of everything. He is the sustainer of everything. He holds. the the world together by the word of his power they wrote in hebrews but look at what it says in genesis 2 7 and the lord god formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul the very fact that you breathe came from jesus christ god almighty you know Jesus is the creator of life, the originator of life, the initiator of life, the power of life, and the sustainer of life, and for us who believe, the re-cre- recreator of life. Now, I'm not here to talk politics, although anyone who knows me knows I love to argue politics and write about it. Uh, it it's entertainment to me, but that's not what I'm doing here today. You know, the wicked decisions that people make almost always out of cons- convenience shock my conscience. I recently saw the ultrasound of my unborn granddaughter, 19 weeks or thereabout. She had hands, you could see her heartbeat, toes, you could tell she was a girl, 19 weeks. And there are people today who say that out of convenience we could terminate that life. Well that's, that violates the very ordinance of God, it violates my conscience that we would agree with that. And here in this church, we do not support that notion. I am unapologetically pro-life. I I am so because Jesus is the originator of life. I also believe that because everything we do in this society is pro-life. We build hospitals and cancer centers and expensive medical equipment designed to save and extend lives. We spent trillions of dollars and kept everyone locked up at home, and we wore face masks. And many were vaccinated against COVID-19. Why? Because the idea is life is precious. You know, I recall exactly as 40 years ago, I was 21 years old, I got hired as a police officer in Gillette, Wyoming, Maybe after four or five days of riding around with my training officer, you let me drive the cop car. 350 engine police package. Things would light up the tires. Uh, we used to see how fast they would go. Uh, I, 20, I can't believe they let me drive that car. But the thing was is that the first time we had an accident with injuries blocking traffic and he let me light up the siren and lights and away we went across town, it was like Moses part in the Red Sea is actually God. But it was, that was, that's what it reminded me of, people pulling out of the way while this police car, you know, woo, 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 get to that accident. I'm going to tell you something we forget. When you hear the siren on a fire truck, you hear the siren on an ambulance, you hear the siren on a police car, everybody knows what's going on in some respect. Something bad happens somewhere. But I'm going to tell you what that siren really means. Life is precious. Life is precious. That's why we do it. That's why, that's why we have ambulances and fire trucks. Life is precious. You know, when Jesus carried that cross down the road and walked up that hill where He voluntarily laid down His life for us, He was declaring, My creation is precious. He said, I, would, I have come that you might have life and that you'd have it abundantly. Jesus is qualified to say He is the way because He offers the hope of eternal life in himself as the risen Savior, because the tomb was empty. John was changed by experiencing the glory in Jesus Christ. But I would would be remiss this morning if I didn't talk about the last phrase of that. Because Jesus says this, No one comes to the Father but through me. If you're to believe Jesus Christ, and you have to believe that part too. That salvation and heaven and all that goes with it, access to God and prayer, only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. John, John Wright, part of Jesus' prayer in John 17, 3. And this is what he, Jesus prayed. He said, and this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So I'd ask you, do you know him? Is heaven just wishful thinking for you? Or is it at the heartbeat of your faith? When you stand before God, are you going to kind of be like me when I lined up to face that great big man on the football field? You're going to say, uh oh. Or do you think maybe you're going to bring your good deeds, your MVP plaques, and your all-conference awards because you think in your moment of truth that's going to stand in for you? You know better. Don't leave today without making that decision. In your own hearts, it's personal. It's personal. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through Him. It is the core of what we believe. And it has to be the core of what you believe if you want a real hope of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that each of us, each of us, will look at this. We'll be honest about whether our hope of heaven is just wishful thinking or if it's rooted in faith in you pray, Lord, that um, we would be students of your word. We would embrace the gospel. That you would work mightily in our hearts. I pray all this in Jesus' name.